Section 20 of Beacon Lights of History, Volume 9, European Statesmen, by John Lord. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by K. Hand. Louis-Philippe, Part 2. The remaining events which marked the ministry of Marshal Soult were the project of fortifying Paris by a series of detached forts of great strength entirely surrounding the city, the liberal expenditure of money for public improvements, and the maintenance of the colony of Algeria. The first measure was postponed on account of the violent opposition of the Republicans, and the second was carried out with popular favor through the influence of Thiers. The Arc de l'Etoile was finished at an expense of two million francs, the Church of the Madeleine at a cost of nearly three millions, the Pantheon of one million four hundred thousand, the Museum of Natural History for which two million four hundred thousand francs were appropriated, the Church of St. Denis, one million three hundred fifty thousand, the Ecole des Beaux Arts, one million nine hundred thousand, the Hotel du Croix Orsay, three million four hundred fifty thousand, besides other improvements, the chief of which was in canals, for which forty four millions of francs were appropriated, altogether nearly one hundred millions of francs, which of course furnished employment for discontented laborers. The retention of the colony of Algeria resulted in improving the military strength of France especially by the institution of the corps of zouaves which afterward furnished effective soldiers it was in africa that the ablest generals of louis napoleon were trained for the crimean war in eighteen thirty four marshal soult retired from the ministry and a series of prime ministers rapidly succeeded one another some of whom were able and of high character but no one of whom made any great historical mark until thiers took the helm of the government in eighteen thirty six not like a modern English Prime Minister, who is supreme so long as he is supported by Parliament, but rather as the servant of the King, like the ministers of George the Third. Thiers was forty years of age when he became Prime Minister, although for years he had been a conspicuous and influential member of the Chamber of Deputies. Like Guizot, he sprang from the people, his father being an obscure locksmith in Marseille. Like Guizot, he first became distinguished as a writer for the Constitutional, and afterwards as its editor. He was a brilliant and fluent speaker, at home on all questions of the day, always equal to the occasion, yet without striking originality or profundity of views. Like most men who have been the architects of their own fortunes, he was vain and consequential. He was liberal in his views, a friend of order and law, with aristocratic tendencies. He was more warlike in his policy than suited either the king or his rival Guizot, who had entered the cabinet with him on the death of Casimir Perrier. Nor was he a favorite with Louis-Philippe who was always afraid that he would embroil the kingdom in war. Thiers' political opinions were very much like those of Canning in later days. His genius was versatile. He wrote history in the midst of his oratorical triumphs. His history of the French Revolution was by far the ablest and most trustworthy that had yet appeared. The same may be said of his history of the consulate and of the empire. He was a great admirer of Napoleon and did more than any other to perpetuate the emperor's fame. His labors were prodigious. He rose at four in the morning and wrote thirty or forty letters before breakfast. He was equally remarkable as an administrator and as a statesman, examining all the details of government and leaving nothing to chance. No man in France knew the condition of the country so well as Thiers, from both a civil and a military point of view. He was overbearing in the Chamber of Deputies, and hence was not popular with the members. He was Prime Minister several times, but rarely for more than a few months at a time. The king always got rid of him as soon as he could, and much preferred Guizot, the high priest of the doctrinaires, whose policy was like that of Lord Aberdeen in England, peace at any price. 
nothing memorable happened during this short administration of Thiers except the agitation produced by secret societies in Switzerland, composed of refugees from all nations, who kept Europe in constant alarm. There were the Young Italy Society and the societies of Young Poland, Young Germany, Young France, and Young Switzerland. The cabinets of Europe took alarm, and Thiers brought matters to a crisis by causing the French minister at Bern to intimate to the Swiss government that unless these societies were suppressed, all diplomatic intercourse would cease between France and Switzerland, which meant an armed intervention. This question of the expulsion of political refugees drew Metternich and Thiers into close connection. But a still more important question, as to the intervention in Spanish matters, brought about a difference between the king and his minister, in consequence of which the latter resigned. Count Molay now took the premiership, retaining it for two years. He was a grave, laborious, and thoughtful man, but without the genius, eloquence, and versatility of Thiers. Molay belonged to an ancient and noble family, and his splendid chateau was filled with historical monuments. He had all the affability of manners which marked the man of high birth, without their frivolity. One of the first acts of his administration was the liberation of political prisoners, among whom was the famous Prince Polianac, the Prime Minister of Charles X. The old king himself died about the same time, in exile in a foreign land. The year 1836 was also signalized by the foolish and unsuccessful attempt of Louis Napoleon at Strasbourg to overthrow the government, but he was humanely and leniently dealt with, suffering no greater punishment than banishment to the United States for ten years. In the following year occurred the marriage of the Duke of Orleans, heir to the throne, with a German princess of the Lutheran faith, followed by magnificent festivities. Soon after took place the inauguration of the Palace of Versailles as a museum of fine arts, which as such has remained to this day. Nor did Louis Napoleon, in the height of his power, venture to use this ancient and magnificent residence of the kings of France for any other purpose. But the most important event in the administration of Count Molay was the extension of the Algerian colony to the limits of the ancient Libya, so long the granary of imperial Rome, and which once could boast of twenty millions of people. This occupation of African territory led to the war in which the celebrated Arab chieftain Abed el Kader was the hero. He was both priest and warrior, enjoying the unlimited confidence of his countrymen, and by his cunning and knowledge of the country he succeeded in maintaining himself for several years against the French generals. His stronghold was Constantine, which was taken by storm in October 1837 by General Valet. Still the Arab chieftain found means to defy his enemies, and it was not until 1841 that he was forced to flee and seek protection from the Emperor of Morocco. The storming of Constantine was a notable military exploit and gave great prestige to the government. Louis-Philippe was now firmly established on his throne, yet he had narrowly escaped assassination four or five times. This taught him to be cautious and to realize the fact that no monarch can be safe amid the plots of fanatics. He no longer walked the streets of Paris with an umbrella under his arm, but enshrouded himself in the Tuileries with the usual guards of continental kings. His favorite residence was at St. Cloud, at that time one of the most beautiful of the royal palaces of Europe. At this time the railway mania raged in France, as it did in England. Foremost among those who undertook to manage the great corporations which had established district railways was Arago the astronomer, who, although a zealous Republican, was ever listened to with respect in the Chamber of Deputies. These railways indicated great material prosperity in the nation at large, and the golden age of speculators and capitalists set in all adverse to war, all worshippers of money, all for peace at any price. 
morning noon and night the offices of bankers and stock jobbers were besieged by files of carriages and clamorous crowds even by ladies of rank to purchase shares in companies which were to make everybody's fortune and which at one time had risen fifteen hundred per cent giving opportunities for boundless frauds military glory for a time ceased to be a passion among the most excitable and warlike people of europe and gave way to the more absorbing passion for gain and for the pleasures which money purchases nor was it difficult in this universal pursuit of sudden wealth to govern a nation whose rulers had the appointment of one hundred and forty thousand civil officers and an army of four hundred thousand men bribery and corruption kept pace with material prosperity never before had officials been so generally and easily bribed indeed the government was built up on this miserable foundation with bribery corruption and sudden wealth the most shameful immorality existed everywhere out of every one thousand births one-third were illegitimate the theatres were disgraced by the most indecent plays money and pleasure had become the gods of france and paris more than ever before was the centre of luxury and social vice it was at this period of peace and tranquillity that talleyrand died on the seventeenth of may eighteen thirty eight at eighty two after serving in his advanced age louis philippe as an ambassador at london the abbe dupanloup afterward bishop of orleans administered the last services of his church to the dying statesman talleyrand had however outlived his reputation which was at its height when he went to the congress of vienna in eighteen fourteen though he rendered great services to the different sovereigns whom he served he was too selfish and immoral to obtain a place in the hearts of the nation a man who had sworn fidelity to thirteen constitutions and betrayed them all could not be much mourned or regretted at his death his fame was built on witty sayings elegant manners and adroit adaptation to changing circumstances rather than on those solid merits which alone extort the respect of posterity the ministry of count molay was not eventful it was marked chiefly for the dissensions of political parties troubles in belgium and threatened insurrections which alarmed the bourgeoisie the king feeling the necessity for a still stronger government recalled old marshal soule to the head of affairs neither thiers nor guizot formed part of soule's cabinet on account of their mutual jealousies and undisguised ambition both aspiring to lead and unwilling to accept any office short of the premiership another great man now came into public notice this was viamain who was made minister of public instruction a post which guizot had previously filled viamain was a peer of france an aristocrat from his connections with high society but a liberal from his love of popularity he was one of the greatest writers of this period both in history and philosophy and an advocate of polish independence thiers at this time was the recognized leader of the left and left centre in the deputies while his rival guizot was the leader of the conservatives eastern affairs now assumed great prominence in the chamber of deputies turkey was reduced to the last straits in consequence of the victories of ibrahim pasha in asia minor france and england adhered to the policy of non-intervention and the sultan in his despair was obliged to invoke the aid of his most dangerous ally russia who extorted as the price of his assistance the famous treaty of unkiar skeldesi which excluded all the ships of war except those of russia and turkey from the black sea the effect of which was to make it a muscovite lake england and france did not fully perceive their mistake in thus throwing turkey into the arms of russia by their eagerness to maintain the status quo the policy of austria there were however a few statesmen in the french chamber of deputies who deplored the inaction of government among these was lamartine who made a brilliant and powerful speech against an inglorious peace this orator was now in the height of his fame 
and but for his excessive vanity and sentimentalism might have reached the foremost rank in the national councils he was distinguished not only for eloquence but for his historical compositions which are brilliant and suggestive but rather prolix and discursive sir archibald allison seems to think that lamartine cannot be numbered among the great historians since like the classic historians of greece and rome he has not given authorities for his statements and unlike german writers disdains footnotes as pedantic but i observe that in his history of europe allison quotes lamartine oftener than any other french writer and evidently admires his genius and throws no doubt on the general fidelity of his works a partisan historian full of prejudices like macaulay with all his prodigality of references is apt to be in reality more untruthful than a dispassionate writer without any show of learning at all the learning of an advocate may hide an obscure truth as well as illustrate it it is doubtless the custom of historical writers generally to enrich or burden their works with all the references they can find to the delight of critics who glory in dullness but this after all may be a mere scholastic fashion lamartine probably preferred to embody his learning in the text than display it in footnotes moreover he did not write for critics but for the people not for the few but for the many as a popular writer his histories like those of voltaire had an enormous sale if he were less rhetorical and discursive his books perhaps would have more merit he fatigues by the redundancy of his riches and the length of his sentences and yet he is as candid and judicial as hallam and would have had the credit of being so had he only taken more pains to prove his points by stating his authorities next to the insolvable difficulties which attended the discussion of the eastern question whether turkey should be suffered to crumble away without the assistance of the western powers whether russia should be driven back from the black sea or not the affairs of africa excited great interest in the chambers algiers had been taken by french armies under the bourbons and a colony had been founded in countries of great natural fertility it was now a question how far the french armies should pursue their conquests in africa involving an immense expenditure of men and money in order to found a great colonial empire and gain military eclat so necessary in france to give strength to any government but a new insurrection and confederation of the defeated arab tribes marked by all the fanaticism of moslem warriors made it necessary for the french to follow up their successes with all the vigor possible in consequence an army of forty thousand infantry and twelve thousand cavalry and artillery drove the arabs in eighteen forty to their remotest fastnesses the ablest advocate for war measures was thiers and so formidable were his eloquence and influence in the chambers that he was again called to the head of affairs and his second administration took place the rivalry and jealousy between this great statesman and guizot would not permit the latter to take a subordinate position but he was mollified by the appointment of ambassador to london the prime minister had a great majority to back him and such was his ascendancy that he had all things his own way for a time in spite of the king whose position was wittily set forth in a famous expression of thiers le roi regne et ne gouverneur pas still in spite of the liberal and progressive views of thiers very little was done toward the amelioration of the sufferings of the people for whom personally he cared but little true a bill was introduced into the chambers which reduced the hours of labor in the manufactories from twelve to eight hours and from sixteen hours to twelve while it forbade the employment of children under eight years of age in the mills but this beneficent measure though carried in the chamber of peers was defeated in the lower house made up of capitalists and parsimonious money worshippers 
what excited the most interest in the short administration of Thiers was the removal of the bones of napoleon from saint helena to the banks of the seine which he loved so well and their deposition under the dome of the invalides the proudest monument of louis quatorze louis philippe sent his son the prince de joinville to superintend this removal an act of magnanimity hard to be reconciled with his usual astuteness and selfishness he probably thought that his throne was so firmly established that he could afford to please the enemies of his house and perhaps would gain popularity but such a measure doubtless kept alive the memory of the deeds of the great conqueror and renewed sentiments in the nation in which less than ten years afterward facilitated the usurpation of his nephew in fact the bones of napoleon were scarcely removed to their present resting-place before louis napoleon embarked upon his rash expedition at boulogne was taken prisoner and immured in the fortress of ham where he spent six years in strict seclusion conversing only with books until he contrived to escape to england the eastern question again under thiers's administration became the great topic of conversation and public interest and his military policy came near embroiling france in war so great was the public alarm that the army was raised to four hundred thousand men and measures were taken to adopt a great system of fortifications around paris it was far however from the wishes and policies of the king to be dragged into war by an ambitious and restless minister he accordingly summoned guizot from london to meet him privately at the chateau d'eau in normandy where the statesman fully expounded his conservative and pacific policy the result of this interview was the withdrawal of the french forces in the levant and the dismissal of thiers who had brought the nation to the edge of war his place was taken by guizot who henceforth with brief intervals was the ruling spirit in the councils of the king guizot on the whole was the greatest name connected with the reign of louis philippe although his elevation to the premiership was long delayed in solid learning political ability and parliamentary eloquence he had no equal unless it were thiers he was a native of switzerland and a protestant but all his tendencies were conservative he was cold and austere in manners and character he had acquired distinction in the two preceding reigns both as a political writer for the journals and as a historian the extreme left and the extreme right called him a doctrinaire and he was never popular with either of these parties he greatly admired the english constitution and attempted to steer a middle course being the advocate of constitutional monarchy surrounded with liberal institutions amid the fierce conflict of parties which marked the reign of louis philippe guizot gradually became more and more conservative verging on absolutism hence he broke with lafayette who was always ready to upset the throne when it encroached on the liberties of the people his policy was pacific while thiers was always involving the nation in military schemes in the latter part of the reign of louis philippe guizot's view were not dissimilar to those of the english tories his studies led him to detest war as much as did lord aberdeen and he was the invariable advocate of peace he was like thiers an aristocrat at heart although sprung from the middle classes he was simple in his habits and style of life and was greater as a philosopher than as a practical statesman amid popular discontents End of section twenty.